It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome back to our roundtable discussion show, Backchat where we look at the stories behind the stories here at Nature. On this edition of the show, we're going to do a deep dive into the ongoing coronavirus outbreak that originated in China. We'll be talking how we report on such a fast-moving story, and with the deluge of news about this story out there, where does nature fit in? I'm Nick Cow, and joining me in the studio are Ewan Calloway. Hi there, I'm a senior reporter at Nature in London, specialising in the life sciences. Nisha Gaind. Hi, I'm Nature's European Bureau Chief, also in London. And on the phone line for Japan, I'm joined by David Tsurinoski. Hello, I'm uh, Nature's Asia-Pacific correspondent. David, you've been reporting on this since day one. How has this story evolved, and did you have any inkling of how big this might become? No, I, I really didn't at the beginning. When it first came out, it was uh, the f- early days of January when um, I heard about it. And at that time, they were just calling it a mysterious pneumonia, which doesn't sound that scary. But then I think around January 7th, they identified it as a coronavirus, which then became very scary because then it was, you know, reminded everyone of SARS in 2003, which spread around the world and killed a lot of people. And China's obviously been where there's been the most cases. Do you have a sense of what the atmosphere is like there now with the lockdowns and everything for the people affected? In Wuhan, they still have a, about a 2.3% uh, fatality rate, I think was the last figure that I saw. So anybody that thinks they might have it is going to be very scared, I think, because the hospitals have been overwhelmed. If you go to the hospital, if you didn't have it, you might get it in the hospital. And medical staff has been infected as well. So some of the medical staff is probably taking time off, you know, and a couple of prominent doctors have died themselves. So I think uh, at the very center, it's still quite, quite scary event. For a lot of the people that aren't showing symptoms of this, it's uh, wearing them down because they are having trouble getting food. I, I was emailing with a researcher today who said she had to try to get food for not only herself, but for other people in compounds that she knew that had been locked down and, and they couldn't get out. So she was trying to collect food for other people in the community while she was also taking care of kids and trying to get some research done. So it's hard to live a normal life. And so, David, I think you have experience of reporting the first SARS outbreak. How does reporting this outbreak compare? I think in both cases, there was a lot of confusion about what was happening. And with this one, it feels like the first SARS, but very much sped up. I think the both the government's reporting on it, you know, they, they give daily 
comprehensive updates about how many cases there are and you know the, the quarantines and all of that they've been very very proactive about it in a way that they weren't in the first i i feel like everything is accelerated and i also think it's starting to show that it might peter out more quickly than the first SARS did which like i said went on for for months and months so what are some of the sensitivities involved in reporting on this virus? For example, the WHO chose to avoid calling the disease by its place of origin. What's nature's stance on this? The name of the the disease and the name of the virus, I guess, has been a bit of an issue. You know, a lot of news organizations, including Nature, originally would describe this as a, a China coronavirus or something like that, which on reflection is quite insensitive. You know, this virus is in what you said, 30 countries, and you don't want it to forever be linked with, you know, one country in which it originated. And then there's this, this I guess, whole name of, of what to call this. There's, you know, a team of virologists has come up with a name for the virus, SARS-CoV-2, based on its phylogeny. WHO has called it the disease that causes COVID-19 based on their best practices and guidelines. And WHO apparently doesn't want to use SARS-CoV-2 for reasons unknown. So yeah, there's, I guess, a, a lot a lot to tiptoe around, basically. I think WHO didn't want that partly because there was some pushback from China because at that time, China didn't want this to be considered as extreme as the SARS-1. They didn't want people to have them together in their minds, like, oh, this is as bad as sars but now I think a lot of people probably consider this worse than SARS, so, so maybe that, that resistance has died down. So, Nisha, with everyone from the BBC to CNN covering this story, there's no shortage of information about the coronavirus out there. Where does nature fit into this? What can we add to the sea of news? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's a huge global story and it's one that has been really, really fast moving, like you said. And for us, it's a massive story for our audience who are mostly scientists. And, and not only do they want to read about it, these people are central to doing a lot of the work that is involved in trying to control the spread of this virus. And so our focus has really been on looking at the science that is being done the questions that researchers are trying to answer in a really rapid way in response to this escalating outbreak. And yeah, we're really lucky to have really experienced reporters like David and Ewan who have covered infectious disease and outbreaks like this over the decades. And we did something this time that we don't typically do, which we have a live blog live on the nature.com slash news site. What was the decision to make that? A lot of the, the answer is to do with how fast moving this story is. And we heard from David how quickly it started at the beginning. And we're a relatively small team compared to a lot of media outlets. We at the moment have about three reporters on this, which is quite a large proportion of our reporting core. And we chose to make this live updates page just so that we could really disseminate some of the more incremental news in a really rapid way. So, of course, there are stories that reporters are chasing and reporting out as big, normal stories that we publish as normal. But there are also these kind of things that happen hourly or daily that we want to tell our readers. It might be a spike in deaths or a spike in infections or new pieces of research that give us clues about where this virus came from. And these are things that we just want to get out there really quickly. And that's why this constantly updated page ended up being a really good way to do that. With this being such a fast-moving story, how do you actually report on it? You know, I remember writing one story and it became outdated basically within half a day or something like that. Different facts became outdated and I had to go through several different versions. This is still when it was unclear of the extent of human-to-human transmission. 
versus animal to human spillover. Yeah, so it was it was a bit tricky and you know, I had to rewrite a story for print pretty much completely from the one that had been online two days prior or something like that. But yeah, I guess you just do the best you can to update it. I think right now things have settled down a bit and the stories we're pursuing are much slower moving. At least that's that's my sense of things. And so you have time to to do checks and things like that. Not that we're not doing those. But yeah, I, I think, you know, it was, a, it was a challenge in the beginning, but now I think it's 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 slowed down a little bit, at least for our coverage. Yeah, no, I had the, the exact same experience. In fact, you know, one, one of the stories I was working on was about modelers who try to say when the number of new cases was going to peak. And as I was writing the story, a new model would come out every day or every two days. You'd have to try and take that new model into account and they would say different things. And at first I was looking at, you know, people were saying that it was going to be end of March or end of May even. And then um, you started to get people saying, well, no, it's actually going to be end of February. So you had these kind of two competing theories. And then you started to have people say, well, actually, it's already happened. So the peak kind of passed over me as I was going, if those models are right. But um, it was very much a difficult task to try to keep all of that in mind as a moving target. And if it is like that, and some people are saying one thing, some people are saying another, and it's moving so quickly, how do you go about fact-checking something like this? I think the way you fact-check any other story is you know, check once, check twice, and make sure, you know, the information you have is as accurate as possible. You know, you're doing, you're only doing the best we can under, under certain constraints. So I don't think, we certainly haven't lowered our standards for fact-checking during this, this, this outbreak. Uh, some news organizations have, or, or maybe they have lower standards, but no, I think you just do your damn best, you know? I don't really have any other answer than that. I think that it also, like I said, we're really lucky to have experienced reporters and who are talking to geneticists and people who do genomics and people who do infectious disease all the time anyway for their job. So I think we're lucky in that we have reporters who know these beats really well and they're not, you know, they haven't been moved from a political desk or something. This is really their bread and butter. So we're already in touch with a lot of the teams that are doing this work. And then it, to some extent, it's up to us to decide whether these pieces of research that have been done really quickly are worthy of our coverage because we know we're a kind of credibility machine, so we have a big responsibility. And in terms of when you were doing this, how much time you spent debunking opposed to reporting on it? At Nature, we haven't really done much debunking. I mean, David and I did a story kind of taking aim at this theory that snakes were an intermediate host of, of the virus that transmitted it to humans based on a pretty shoddy paper that virologists who had a clue denounced yeah, I mean, I think we're trying to have a pretty good BS meter and only present things that we think are important to our readers and important to the scientific community. There was a story that I wrote a couple of years ago in, in Wuhan about a BSL-4 lab, so a biosafety lab, and they were going to look at the SARS virus and other coronaviruses. And people focused on that to fuel a lot of conspiracy theories that this was some kind of weapon. And people would get online and attach my story, which referred to it as a biosafety laboratory, and called a bioweapons laboratory. And then I had a lot of people writing me to say, you know, why, why, why aren't you reporting about how China's trying to destroy the world with this virus? And we kind of just, I, th I think we put a, a little uh, qualifier on the story to say that, you know, this basically we have no evidence to believe that. So as you say, we added a little like editorial line to that. Is that something that we typically do? That's actually a pretty rare move, I would say. The stories that have been published in the past, they exist in a particular time frame. So it is 
pretty unusual that you would go back and add editorial notes to stories. But in this case, we noticed from analytics and from what David was telling us and from other sources that the story was getting a huge amount of attention, Yeah, essentially fueling a, what we deem conspiracy theories online. So it felt like the right time after the appropriate editorial discussion to put something out there with nature's name on it to say that we didn't think there was evidence to support those theories. And in sort of the wider coverage, there is a lot of misinformation out there about this disease. Does nature have a role in trying to combat that misinformation? I think that's something that Ewan has already touched on and because there are stories out there that other outlets have done that have purely been designed to just debunk some of the misinformation out there, which is a thing that bubbles up during outbreaks like these because fear suddenly becomes a currency and so does misinformation. We haven't necessarily chosen to focus on that because, frankly, we're trying to spread not misinformation. We're trying to spread spread accurate information. And that's something I wanted to touch on there when you say about fear. With a story like this, sort of a global disease spread, is there a risk of worrying people simply by reporting on it? I, I think so, yeah. I mean, we, we had so this modeling story I was, I was doing there. There was a guy who his model said that 40% of China is going to be infected and that there's going to be 2.3 million people infected in one day. And if you keep a a fatality rate of what we're looking at now of 2.3% in in Wuhan or close to 1%. That's going to be a you know that's going to be a lot of people dying and and a lot of suffering. So that's what his model said. He he checks out as a researcher, but what I tried very hard to do is to put that all in perspective and say, well, if that is going to be the case, we would expect many fewer of those people to be severely affected. There wouldn't be as much suffering as we're seeing right now with a limited number of cases. So you try to put it in the best context to make sure that people get a full picture of it. And hopefully that will make people panic to just the right level. Yeah. I mean, this thing is scary. Like, <laughs> let's call a spade a spade. I mean, it's just because of a lot of the unknowns, basically. You know, we we don't have any therapeutics. We don't have a vaccine. We have no pre-existing immunity, you know, which we do for most flus that emerge. So there's every possibility that this could cause a pandemic and become established in, in humans and cause great suffering. And very legitimate scientists are, are saying that. So I, I think that's something we need to convey to readers as, as well. Yeah. And with that and with these different model estimates and things out there, should we make it super clear like how much we don't know about this disease? Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what the reporting has done so far in the early days. A lot of the stories that we were writing were simply outlining the questions that researchers themselves were trying to answer. I think that was one of the first stories that David and Ewan were working on because there was kind of a lag between this outbreak really picking up and these first kind of research papers and analyses coming out. That definitely comes across in our coverage. And then as the, I think now, I guess it's weeks that have passed, those answers have started to trickle in and we get a slightly better picture. But again, a lot of these analyses are preliminary and it's the comment and the context that we provide when we report those results that is really important for us and for our readers. One thing that is interesting is, I mean, the, the, the pace of research on, on this, this disease and this virus is pretty astonishing. A lot of it's ending up on preprint servers, and there's a lot of chaff, I guess. And, you know, but there is, there is a lot of wheat there. There's a lot of really good science that's coming out very rapidly, and we're really quickly learning a lot about this disease and, and about this virus, which 
I think is is kind of astounding. Whether it does anything to bend the curve of this epidemic in time remains a question, but scientists are jumping to action and, and producing some really outstanding research, especially scientists in, in China. Yeah, I think you're seeing some, some really impressive work under quite, uh, quite hectic conditions, I guess. Well, there we have it for another edition of Backchat. All that remains today is to thank my guests, Ewan Calloway, David Zirinowski, and Nisha Gain for joining me today. You can find all of the stories that we discussed here over at nature.com slash news. This has been Backchat. I've been Nick Howe. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.